Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 7? That's page 843 in the Blue Pew Bible. And let me also just say I hope you are enjoying uh, the kickoff the summer, this Memorial Day weekend. This is always an interesting Sunday where we can kind of look around and see who else got, did not get invited to go away uh, this weekend. And we're just home, but that's, uh, it's all good. And uh, I, I was thinking about this last night that uh, I think in, in many ways uh, there's no better way to celebrate Memorial Day weekend than attending corporate worship. Because I think of the freedoms that we for sure take for granted in this country, freely worshiping without fear of or oppression from a government is just a good gift that we experience week after week. And it is one that millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe just don't have this morning. Uh, But the reality is that when you were coming to church this morning, you did not need to look in your rearview mirror and pay attention if you were being tailed. You didn't have to try to figure out if that car was following you and you had to shake him before showing up. And, and when you came to the door, there was no secret knock you had to give us, right? There was no password to get in. And we do not wonder as we sit in this room uh, whether this is going to be the last Sunday that this church and this group is going to be able to meet here before being busted. And so we are grateful and we give high honor to men and women who have given their lives to secure a country that upholds freedom. That includes a freedom of religion, and, and, and all religions, by the way, not just Christianity. And, and while um, we just need to understand, I think need to clarify over and over again that, that we are grateful for our country, but we worship God alone, right? We bow to the cross and not necessarily to the flag, but we can and should, in good conscience, be grateful to God for our country. And be grateful to God that we can be dutiful, law-abiding citizens in a place that has freely secured um, opportunities, uh, opportunities for us to gather and do ministry without fear. So let me start by asking a question this morning. Um, What is the right way to approach God when you want something? What's the right way to approach God when you want something? I think that's an applicable question that is very important one to understand because we all are going to fall in, in the camp of needing to know that answer. Because if we believe that God is sovereign over all creation, over all things, which we do, and if we live lives where we want things to happen or not happen, which we most certainly do, then we need to decide what is the right way to approach God. Are we supposed to approach him in sheer terror? Like like a timid employee that is preparing to approach a tyrant of a boss to ask for more time off work. Right? Where where the boss needs to be appeased and and maybe even puffed up before a request comes. Like, do you know what I mean by that? Where when you have this mentality that, okay, I need to really do some groundwork here and make somebody happy before I ask him something. I need to toot their horn and to say all these things about them so it softens them up to possibly maybe saying yes to what we're asking for. When I worked in finance before um, moving to ministry, I worked for a relatively small financial firm in the city, about 150 people. And the boss, who was uh, very successful, kind of built this business from the ground up, um, he purposefully, I think, um, loved operating with a Let's just call it fear-based management style. 
right? Anytime somebody needed to ask him something, whether new employees or people have been there forever, it just never went well, like ever. And so you kind of had to learn to avoid it at all costs. So like whenever I need something, I have to find other ways other than going to him directly. And when that did have to happen, you had to do all sorts of groundwork to appease him before asking something. And I think we just all know people who are like that. Of course, nobody in this room. Maybe people in this room, all right? But we know bosses, and we have friends, and we have neighbors, maybe even times a spouse who you feel like you need to walk on eggshells around, and maybe you need to puff them up before asking something. So kids, you're in the service with us today. I don't know when kids learn this, but it's like, it's like a trait that's like genetically in our DNA that we, if we want something for mom and dad, we got some work to do beforehand, right? We, 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 gotta, we know the things to say, the things we got to do, that we, have to just, we just had to cultivate the ground before we ask him of something because we feel like that will help our chances. So do we approach God like that? Or on the other side, do we approach God like he's just our own personal genie in a bottle? Right? No reverence, no need to ever kind of think about it. He's just God. He just will do whatever we ask. And just throwing requests out to him is like the same mindset we buy things on Amazon Prime. Right? Click, click, nice and easy. Expect to see an answer on my doorstep in two business days. So what's the right way to approach God? That's the question we're going to set out to answer this morning in our passage. And we're in Mark chapter 7. We're in the verses 24 through 30 this morning in this gospel that we have been walking through verse by verse since the month of January. We're up to Mark chapter 7, starting verse 24. Read along, follow along with me as I read. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Man, we got some work to do this morning to understand what that was just all about. The, the passage starts with from there. So, so your first question might be, well, where is there? If you missed last week or you're just joining us, Jesus has been in the region of Galilee where he was doing ministry and he was having increasing conflict with the Jewish elite, the, the Pharisees. They were just going at it back and forth and the dialogue was becoming more hostile, right? The, the temperature in the room has been getting turned up and so Jesus, recognizing this and knowing it's not yet his appointed time, decides he's got to get out of town. He's got to just jet out of town while things cool down. And so he and his disciples head to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's about 50 to 60 miles northwest of Galilee. So just throw it up on the map. Just get our bearings here. Where were they? Uh, if you see on this map, uh, it might be a little difficult to see, but there's green shaded area in the bottom right. That's all Israel's borders. Everything outside of that was outside of what 
uh, was considered Israel. And so you see an arrow kind of looping up to the left and up the coast, up to Tyre and Sidon. That is where they travel to to get out of town while the Pharisees kind of start cooling down a bit, knowing Jesus was not his appointed time yet. He had to get out. It's a Gentile region, again, meaning non-Jewish. And so he goes outside the borders of Israel. And interestingly, it is the only time recorded in the four Gospels that Jesus ventures beyond Israel's borders. It's the region of Tyre and Sidon, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But it is not just non-Jewish, but by this time, it is a region that has a long, long history of opposition to Israel. They were enemies. History tells us that it was a pagan culture. Pagan means very religious, but having nothing to do with the God of Israel. So had their share of gods, but no need for the God of the Jews worshipped. And so historians would say that it was the most extreme version of paganism that a Jew could possibly encounter in that day. And yet, this is the destination that Jesus has in mind. He chooses to go there. You you could say in line with the context of Mark that, yes, it was just because he had to get away from Israel and let things cool down. But he could have gone other places. There's other places he could have gone. Not Tyre. Not Sidon. I'm sure his disciples all along the way were just like, wait, we're going where? And why? Like, just trying to talk him out of it. Can we just detour this way or that way? Like, why do we have to go up there? But that's where they go. And so even before we get to this dialogue he has, even before the story starts, there's something there for us. Jesus is intentionally going to the people that no Jew, Jewish man or woman would ever go. And it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse into what Jesus has come to do, which is far bigger and far grander than anyone could have ever imagined. And it's a glimpse into the truth that there is no such thing as being too far gone where the power of Christ cannot enter and transform. And maybe, perhaps just maybe, he knew exactly what was waiting for him there. Perhaps he knew what an opportunity this would be for his disciples to see. And so it's here we're going to start just a four-point, very simple outline. Um, First, a desperate plea. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. So he goes to Tyre, and, and, and Mark tells us that he wanted to keep a, a low profile, right? He, he didn't want to make a scene. But as we've seen over and over again, that just ain't going to happen for Jesus. He's too well-known at this point. His works are too famous. Traveled, what he's done has traveled already to Tyre inside, and he is a celebrity before there was such thing as celebrity culture. And he gets approached right away upon entering town. And did you see what Mark does in just painting the picture for us here? He is very clear in his description of this person because she has everything going against her when it comes to someone who can just approach a Jewish rabbi in the first century. And Mark just stacks them on top of one another. She's a woman. And we know how, li- how limited and how much of a limitation of rights that women had in this culture. And she's a Gentile. Again, meaning just non-Jewish. She's not in the chosen people. But on top of all that, she is Syrophoenician. 
meaning that she's a native of this region, that Tyre and Sidon are within. And it, it is difficult for me to emphasize just how fractured the relationship was between the Jews and the Phoenicians. Even you go back to the Old Testament, we read prophetic words of judgment upon these lands in the years before Israel was taken into exile. They were always neighbors that hated one another. So I don't think this is too dramatic, but maybe it is, but it is like saying today, this is a woman and she was from ISIS. She's from Al-Qaeda. These people are diametrically opposed to you. That's Syrophoenician. To understand the weight of what it is of this woman approaching Jesus. And she's a woman, she's Gentile, and she's Syrophoenician, and she could not have been at more of a disadvantage when it came to someone who wanted to uh, approach Jesus and ask for something. In Matthew's parallel account of this story, we read that his disciples were urging Jesus to send her away. Jesus, do you see who this is? Have nothing to do with this lady. Get her away. Jesus, this is not good for you. These are not good optics for her to be seen with you. Send her away, Jesus, please, come on. What are you doing messing around with this? But she comes and begs him to cast a demon from her daughter. The, the verb in the Greek there implies ongoing begging. It wasn't a one-time ask, right? Over and over again, just relentless, kept asking. Tim Keller, speaking of her just unbelievable boldness, I love this when he says, quote, there are cowards and there are regular people and there are heroes and then there are parents. He says parents are not really on the spectrum of cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her parents uh, a category of their own and this woman was relentless because she was a mom and her daughter was in need of help and she didn't care about culturally acceptable norms she thought jesus could save her i'm going to jesus from here we move from a desperate plea to number two a shocking answer a shocking answer. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay. There are times in the Bible where you will be reading something and your first impulse will be like to cringe and go, What? Let me clear my eyes again and read that again. Wait, it does say that. Did he, did he just? Wait, did Jesus? What's going on here? That is a shocking answer because it appears Jesus just flat out insulted this woman, calling her a dog. Or worse, calling her daughter a dog. What's happening here? But we need to do the hard work of thinking this through in context to Jesus' ministry, in context to the timing in the gospel, and in the location in the gospel of Mark. We, we have to dig deep. And so first and foremost, we cannot water down that word dog. In the New Testament era, era 
dogs were not house pets, all right? This is not a canine-loving society, all right, like we have today. Dogs were wild, and they were dirty. They were not seen as worthy or valuable. And any time the word dog is used in the New Testament, it never has a positive connotation. So first thing off the table is to say, well, Jesus is putting a positive spin on this. Like when we talk about, and thank God people, like we just don't talk like this anymore, but it's not like, hey, what's up, dog? That's not the dog here. All right? That's not a dog where it's like your buddy and it's like somebody that you're kind of boys with. All right? This is calling somebody a term that you just don't want to be called. But notice when Jesus says, his line is not a direct statement to her. This is her asking him a question and he answers with a parable. This is a one-line parable. It's a metaphor, and I think he says it knowing the shock value as a way to test her. When you have conversations with people, I think sometimes we notice this happens where you might say something just for the sole purpose of getting a rise out of the other person. You ever do that? Something that's kind of meant to provoke. It's not really sarcasm, but it's more like a dramatic way of getting a point across. And he sees here is a parent, a mother, pleading out of love for her daughter. And so he essentially says in response, he gives a parable. He says, you know what? Of all people, you should know our children eat first. The food comes to them first. And it's not right to take their food and throw it to the dogs, the the wild animals, those outside. And the most important word in this single line parable is the word first. Jesus speaking to this Gentile woman who is desperate for him to display divine power to drive out evil says to her, first, the children need to be fed. And we know that this is what he's meaning in his parable. Because again, Matthew tells the same story but gives a little bit of a longer version. And in Matthew's version, he says to her, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus was born to a Jewish family. He had Jewish lineage. And his first order of business was to reveal himself to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And the reason is because he is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, of of every prophecy amongst these people. He's the long-awaited Messiah of this people that's been promised since literally the beginning of mankind. No other religion, no other people were looking for a Messiah. He has come first to the nation of Israel, and he has come to work within these people to reveal himself, and ultimately, under the sovereign will and purpose of God, he would be killed by these people in order to save them. And so the key word in this parable is first, because Jesus doesn't say no to the people outside Israel, just not yet. Not yet. This is why it's important to understand the context of where we are in the book of Mark. Because it wouldn't be until after his death and resurrection that Jesus would then say to his disciples, Go to all the nations. 
The will of God has always been to bless all the nations through the life and work of Jesus Christ, but there was a redemptive order in place. Paul will put it this way in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But then he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation is for everyone. But in God's redemptive order, it came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so he says this parable to this woman so shockingly in order to test her, which sets things up for the best part of this story. A shocking answer that leads to third, a faithful response. You see what she says? Verse 29. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And if they eat like my kids, those crumbs would be enough for a full meal. <laughs> but this response is everything. It, it, it's witty. It's kind of heroic. But most importantly, it's full of faith. I love this woman because she doesn't flinch as Jesus tells this parable referring to her people, including her daughter, as dogs. It's a faithful response that is bold yet meek. Bold yet meek. It's bold because she's not taking no for an answer. She's a loving, a loving mother, right? She, she's not easily deterred. She, she doesn't flinch, but instead she takes the shocking answer, kind of walks in it, uses it, embraces it, and then asks again. One commentator said she took a grenade lobbed to her by Jesus, picked it up, and lobbed it back. Yes, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She could have walked away at this moment and thought, I knew it. This was a waste of time. I, I, I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't the kind of person that Jesus came to save. She could have walked away just full of shame in herself, thinking I'm a mother who can't even get protection for her daughter. I'm too far gone, and now my, now my daughter's praying the price. This could have been a shame-filled moment for her that Jesus would never be able to help me. I'm just too messed up. Knew it all along. It's not what she does. She stands there, and she won't take no for an answer, and she asks again. You know why? Because she zeroed in on and picked up upon the key word in that parable. First. So her response is, yeah, okay, Lord, the Jews can have it first. That's fine. But I know even the crumbs will be enough for me and my daughter. It's bold. A anybody, I think, who's listening in on this back and forth would probably think, man, she just doesn't get it. She is off her rocker. A no's a no, lady. Walk away. Move on but you can just picture her in that moment, just eyes locked on Jesus. She's not going anywhere. It's amazing. So it's bold, but it's also meek. So I want, this is important. I want you to understand this part of it. You know what she also doesn't do? She doesn't fly off the handle. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't respond with, what would you just call me? What would you call my daughter? She doesn't get all bent out of shape because she's owed better than that. 
She doesn't say, no, you heal my daughter because I deserve it. I'm here. But rather, she pleads in spite of the fact that she knows she doesn't deserve it. It's not her goodness she's relying on. It's his goodness. It's not her rights that she's after. It's his radical, unconditional grace. So she's bold enough to know she isn't hopeless and full of shame. And yet she's meek enough to know that it's only by the grace of Jesus that she stands a chance. It's a stunning, faithful response that we would do well to hear. Brothers and sisters, this is what faith is. It's bold, knowing there's no such thing as being too far gone, outside the reach of saving grace. It's knowing he is willing. And yet, at the same time, it's meek, knowing there's nothing in us worth saving. But it's purely by his goodness and grace. It's knowing he is able. Faith is knowing that Jesus is willing and able. It is bold and it is meek. We deserve nothing. We've earned nothing. And there's perhaps no other doctrine that is harder for our modern minds and our culture to understand and hear. Because, no, we've got rights, don't we? God owes us. In our day, the tragedy of an evolving, growing, technological culture is that God has become so small. And he's become so insignificant that the majority of people, whether they admit it or not, live as if God is under their control. Like God is trying to make it up to them. Like God owes them. So in order for saving faith to settle in and take root in our hearts, that mirage of control needs to be shattered into a million pieces. And then that third faithful response leads to our fourth and final point. It's an ironic lesson. It's an ironic lesson here. Jesus loves this display of faith. His his disciples, their their blood is probably boiling. This woman thinks she can just come up to us and talk to us. Like, Like the disciples are ready for Jesus just to tee off on her and send her away. But he loves this response. He loves a display of faith because he understands the boldness and the meekness within it. Again, in Matthew's account, he actually proclaims to her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. And he does as she desires, drives the demon from within her daughter, even though he's nowhere near her. It's the first time that Jesus drives out a demon without even being in the presence of the demon. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of authority. He knows exactly what to do. And in a moment, the evil realm submits to him yet again, even when he's out of sight. But here's the most fascinating aspect of this story. This woman is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. She's the first one. He didn't need to unpack it further for her. She heard it, immediately knew it, and responded in faith. 
And that is why I think Jesus decided to come to Tyre and Sidon, knowing his disciples would be by his side. I've told you throughout, one of my favorite parts about the Gospel of Mark, I'm just so in love with the Gospel of Mark right now, because you know why I love it? Because there's a theme of irony that just gets traced through it all the way through. And once you know that, you start seeing it all over the place. And nowhere has it been more powerful up to this point and more evident than in this passage. Jesus has first come to the nation of Israel. He has revealed himself to them over and over again, just teaching and healing and driving out evil and just incredible miracles stacked on top of them. We've been seeing them week after week after week and calling for those who are seeing it that they would have ears to hear and yet not one not the educated Pharisees, not even his own disciples really get it. And here, the only time Jesus travels outside of Israel, he comes upon a Syro-Phoenician woman, and she is the first one to call him Lord. It's incredible. She is the first one to hear what he says and understand that even his crumbs are able to transform, redeem, and save. That he is the bread of life. The one thing his disciples are seeing done even more miraculously and can't get. And she knows that Jesus has come for all people of all nations, of all cultures and languages and backgrounds. And while the story of redemption comes through the nation of Israel, while he was first sent to the Jews, God's will is and always has been for all people to see, hear, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is why he came. To seek and save the lost and to do what no one else could have ever fathomed. So as we close, let me return to my question. What's the right way to approach God when you want something? The answer is by faith with humble confidence. It's the phrase I want you to remember. Humble confidence because it is a phrase that only works when it's seen through the lens of the gospel. It represents how the Christian life ought to be lived, let alone how our Father in heaven ought to be approached. We come before him humble, knowing he isn't our personal genie that just gives us whatever we want on demand. If we just ask the right way, then he just is sure to give it to us. We come before him only because Jesus first came. And gave his life so that we might be saved. And so it's not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. It's your work, not ours. It's your goodness, not ours. And it's not until we fully understand that it's by his grace alone that we've been saved that we will actually come before him humble. And yet, simultaneously, we come before him confident knowing that he has saved us and has saved those who have put their faith in him. And he has given us a seat at the table and he calls us to approach the throne of grace with all assurance that our God is a loving father who has lavished his grace upon his people. We come confident because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ that has declared us righteous by his death and resurrection. Humble confidence. 
what is so amazing about the word of God in general, but even about this single story specifically, is that it could be applied to everyone in the room. For, for those who have not yet trusted your life to Jesus Christ, who have not explicitly and clearly submitted yourself and confessed of your sin and repented and, and trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, this word tells us and encourages us there's no such thing as too far gone. That person that Jesus, quote, would never save, that person doesn't exist. And I have all sorts of people in my life, I'm sure you do as well, um, who, who, who struggle really to even walk into a church because they think the, the walls would cave in on them. And it's just this, this message that goes out that he just went to a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. There is no one who is too far gone. Humble confidence is what happens in your heart the moment you see how serious your sin is and simultaneously see Jesus as the one who's came to take that sin upon himself and offer you forgiveness that brings new life. And then those of us who are in the room, who are in Christ, maybe it's been um, five months, maybe it's been five decades, but either way, this woman shows us how we ought to approach our Father when we want something. The reason we can ask him for anything is rooted in the knowledge that he already gave us what was most valuable to him. He already gave us the life of his one and only son. And if God did not spare his only son, then there's nothing that we cannot approach him with. And so we can come before him with, with personal struggles against sin that we just can't seem to conquer. We can come before him on behalf of our spouse who is far from the Lord. We can come before him for our children who have strayed. We can storm the throne of grace with prayers for financial provision and, and physical health and, and mental health. And we can come before him just to ask for a good friend. Humble confidence means we can trust him. And it means that we can bring anything to him because at our core, we are fueled by the reality that Jesus has already met our deepest need when he went to the cross for us. And here's a, this is what's important. Sometimes the answer is going to be no. And when the answer is no, it's not necessarily a reflection on us and our lack of faith. But it's a true, mature faith that could handle the no's. Because we trust that when it came to what we needed most, he said yes. And we know and trust that God will work out all things for good in the end, even if we cannot fully understand them now. So church, let us take note of the first person to get it right in the Gospel of Mark. It's awesome. It's a woman. It was a Gentile. It was a Syrophoenician. And let us respond in faith. And when walking by faith, let us approach our Lord with humble confidence, knowing that we are dogs that just became family by his grace. Let's pray.